0: Well, today we come to the third chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, open up to that passage, and if, we, uh, if you'll indulge me here, we'll just begin by reading the first five verses of, of that chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So many of us say prayers all the time, we pray before meals, we pray maybe when we're putting our children to sleep, we pray perhaps before a big exam or maybe before a big presentation, a big project of some sort. We might pray before a long trip. We have all these reasons why we pray, all these occasions why we pray. We pray at ceremonies and dedications and and all those sorts of things. You have short little prayers that you might say throughout the day, just when you are blessed here or there, certainly nothing wrong with any of that, we're to pray at all times. But those are prayers which are part of our everyday activities. They just kind of pop up in our life like wildflowers on a sunny day. They take little effort and sometimes require very little thought or deliberation in our hearts. But there are other kinds of prayers they're prayers that born are born out of the fires of trial. Prayers that have their origin in the whirlwind of chaos. They are prayers that don't just sprout up out of the soft soil of pleasant circumstances, but they're prayers that have to push through the hard circumstances of life. They rise out of the rubble of brokenness. They're prayers that are... We might say laborious at times, prayers that are toilsome, they require a kind of determination. They don't come without deep conviction uh, that is etched into our hearts. But they're formidable prayers, prayers that have a kind of strength of character because they are forged in the intense battle of fear or panic or unbelief or anxiety. They're prayers that have been forced to grapple with the limitations of our human weaknesses and the difficulties of our circumstances. And consequently, they're prayers that have a tighter grip on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They hold tightly to God with greater intensity because of how they arise. These are the kinds of prayers that we find from Paul in these verses. These are not the prayers of a a man who's lived a life of ease. They're not the prayers of a, a man who has had everything go his way. They're not the prayers of a person who's never faced difficulty or trial. In fact, they're just the opposite. These are the prayers of a man who has gone through turmoil. You remember he was ripped away from these Thessalonians against his will, having to sort of flee, if you will, under the darkness of night. He had to get out of town as quickly as he could because people were threatening him and, and threatening the church that he was ministering to. And as he went his way to Berea and to other places, he was chased out of all of those towns as well. Now He's faced one difficulty after another. And not only was he grappling with whatever was in front of him, but along the way, he had to grapple with the anxiety of what he left behind about how these people are doing and how they would manage in the Lord without him and without his, his shepherding hand over them. These are the prayers that come from the heart of a pastor who's grappled with real threats to himself and to the church, to the ministry of the word ever since he left Thessalonica. And he now has heard word that there's been a letter that's been sent to the church, a false letter, through some people who had infiltrated the church and and this congregation that he so dearly loved now. He was hundreds of miles away from them, but even further it felt because there were obstacles that prevented him returning and seeing them face to face, blocked at every turn his only contact through them was through letters or possibly through messengers who acted like couriers between him. He dearly loved them, and yet now he has heard that their faith is being upset. Several times throughout this letter, and, and even the previous one, he talks about how he earnestly longed to come and see them face to face, 1 Thessalonians 3 He talked about how day and night he earnestly prayed that he might see them face to face and supply what is lacking in their faith. He had this burning desire within him to minister to these people, and yet he had to face the limitations of his circumstances, the helplessness of the place where he found himself. It had to tear at his heart, it had to eat away at him, to know that there were People trying to rattle the faith and undermine the standing of his beloved church. The church had been shaken in their heart and mind already, as Paul indicated. And all he could do was write a letter and hope that somehow, some way, that his letter would carry more weight with them than the false letter that they had had heard. I'm sure everything within him wanted to march down to Thessalonica to take a stand in front of them, to grab hold, if you will, as best he could of the situation, and to turn it however it needed to turn. I'm sure there was such a, a, a desire within him to want to seize control of the situation, and yet he knew that he couldn't. He was faced with his own limitations He was faced with restrictions, with roadblocks, with obstacles. And I'm sure he had to battle a sense of fear over everything that could potentially happen that was out of his control. I'm sure you've had times like that. I'm sure you've had times where you've invested in a project or you've invested in a person, or you've invested in your family, you've invested in your children. I'm sure you've had times where you have poured so much into some, uh, someone or something, and then you reach a point where it seems like it just begins to spin out of your control, and you are gripped with the anxiety and the worry and the concern and everything within you wants to reach out and draw that back in or somehow take control of that situation to lay your hands on it, if you will, so that you can manipulate it or change it or do whatever you want. And and yet for all of your efforts and your desire, it just seems to be spinning out of control. Paul felt that. He felt that in this situation, and it forged the prayers that we find in this passage. Both the prayers that He offers for them and the prayers even that He asks from them. In so many ways, these, these kinds of trials are the very thing that shaped His confidence. It's sort of a, a counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to think that whenever things are out of your control and sort of you're feeling helpless, that that might be actually the time when you feel the greatest confidence, but that's what Paul experienced because it taught him not to put his confidence in himself, but in the Lord. It taught him that he can trust all of these important things to the Lord, and that's exactly where he needed to place his trust. It taught him to take the reliance off of himself and put it squarely back on Christ so that he could say, as the writer of James says, he could count it blessing whenever he fell into these various trials. Paul had learned that. He was forced to learn that. And it forced him into a kind of prayer life that was exemplary, model for you and I. We see his prayers here that really have this very clear concept in mind, that his ministry in the present and his ministry even with them at the distant location, even with all of the past efforts he's put into it, his ministry has no hope of succeeding or advancing apart from the grace of God. And these prayers reflect that. They give us a model of the kind of prayer that comes with a confidence in the Lord. They are deliberate, they are candid and straightforward, they're specific, they're spiritually focused, they are discerning about what the real issues are. And these are prayers or prayer requests in some situations or some verses here from a man who understood exactly what the real struggles were what the real needs were, what really needed to happen in order to see God glorified and the ministry advance. So we're going to look at these prayers this morning and take note of the ways in which Paul, through prayer, faced these challenges in his life and in his ministry with confidence in the Lord and where the source of his confidence came from. And we, we can begin... Just there in verses 1 and 2, by taking note of the source of Paul's confidence for the success of the Word, the source of his confidence for the success of the Word. This, this verse or these verses really arise directly out of every experience that he's had over the few months since he's left the place of Thessalonica finally, brothers, he says, pray for us. He uses this word finally, not because he's giving his sort of closing uh, salutations. It's kind of a transition. Everything he's been talking about, really, in chapter 2 has been peering into the future, thinking about all those things that are going to happen. And now he wants to deal with the present situation, the situation he's already described as as one in which the mystery of lawlessness is at work among them, and yet is being somewhat restrained. But he wants to transition in a very clear way on how do you live, how do you survive, how do you minister in that kind of environment? And so he talks about that. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. This is his first place, is to ask them for prayer. To ask them for prayer. That they would partner together with him by prayer. It's no superficial request either. I don't think Paul is just doing this out of a sense of decorum or politeness or or you know wanting to cross his theological T's and dot his I's this was a man who had become thoroughly convinced of the necessity that every minister must feel that if their ministry is going to be successful, if it's going to be effective, it must be borne up by and carried along by the prayers of many saints. Paul says this over and over again, even at the end of 1 Thessalonians In chapter 5, verse 25, he had asked, brothers, pray for us. He frequently asked for prayers from his church because he understood the efficacy of it. He understood it was an instrument the Lord uses. As much as he uses the lips of the minister to proclaim the truth, he uses the prayers of the saints To render those words effective as much as he uses the words of a counselor to bring comfort and healing to the oppressed soul and the distressed person. He uses the prayers of saints who are behind that counselor. Lifting them up as they go into each of those sessions, as you labor on behalf of your, your husband and your wife when they're counseling a friend, as you labor on behalf of your spouse when they're shepherding your children, as you labor on behalf of me and your other pastors and teachers as we proclaim the truth, those prayers are used mightily by the, by the Lord in the accomplishment of His, of His ministry. So Paul understood this, and he knew without the sovereign working of a God behind it, the Word of God, the gospel message, would have no real success. Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul says to the Romans, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That I might be delivered from unbelievers who are in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints. Very similar sentiment from the Apostle Paul. Strive with me. Struggle with me. You may not be where I am. You may not be in the situation, the circumstances I am. You may not be necessarily facing the dangers face to face like I am. But I want you to embrace the struggle that I have. Embrace the discouragement that I face. Embrace the, embrace the persecutions that I'm under. Embrace those things and struggle and fight together with me. You may not be right there with our missionaries in Croatia or Italy, but you can sense the hardness of the soil that they're trying to toil and what it must feel like day in and day out to to wake up and to give yourself once again to prayer and to the study of the Word and the preaching of the Word, knowing that the fruit is not always going to be visible on a week-to-week basis. You may not be there in Mexico with our missionaries who are laboring in the the dangerous situations that they're in. You may not be putting your life in jeopardy to be kidnapped or whatever it might be, but you can labor and you can strive together with those ministers of the gospel that God would protect them and God would let the word flourish. It's a beautiful picture that Paul lays out there. Not just the minister making all the sacrifices, doing all the hard work, but Paul says you can strive together with me. You can help bear the load with me. Like Moses who was laboring in prayer for the Israelites, pleading for the Lord to have mercy over them and yet had to have his helpers to hold up his arms as he did that. We Stand together with those who minister the Word of God in all of its various contexts, and we hold them up. We give our prayers to support them. There's a kind of labor and struggle that is involved with this. There ought to be. It ought to be something that we engage in, that we enter into. We ought to feel the, the struggle and the strain of all these various kinds of ministry. We ought to understand the battle. So that our prayers aren't just flippant. Paul to the Ephesians after he finishes this whole section on spiritual warfare. Talking about how they need to take up all the kind of armor and the weapons that God has provided for them. He says at the end of that. And praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. That words may be given to me in in the opening of my mouth boldly. To proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. So that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's a, he's basically acknowledging, look, I struggle with boldness. I struggle to speak as I ought to speak. And so it's a plea on behalf of him and, and those who minister. It's a plea with the church to... Help him in his effectiveness to do his job the way he ought to do it. Colossians, he says, pray for us that God would open a door for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account, uh, on account of which I am in prison, so that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul's again just admitting, look, I'm in chains, I'm in prison, I want to open my lips I want to preach the gospel I want to make it clear but I can't do that if you won't stand with me that you wouldn't pray with me so that I could preach the way I ought to preach this is the word Paul uses over and over again this is what I ought to do this is what I should do but I know that I won't be able to fully do it without your without your help I find it interesting, really, as you go throughout the uh, letters of the Apostle Paul, when, when you're in passages that you might think of as evangelistic, or at least talking about the work of evangelism, that all of the emphasis is always on the, the preacher. It's, you might say it this way all the emphasis, all the focus is on the saint, not the sinner. It's on the harvester, not the harvest. But you know, that comes exactly out of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. Pray, therefore, earnestly. To the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is how Jesus instructed you when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to evangelistic work, he instructed you to pray primarily for the laborers, primarily for the workers, primarily for the ministers that God would thrust them out. The word is ekbalo, and if you know anything about Greek, that is the word that is used when Jesus was casting out demons. It implies a kind of resistance, a kind of forceful thrusting forward. And so this is the idea that what you pray that God would help all of us ministers to get over our inhibitions, to get over our hesitations, to get over our fears... To get over our resistance to whatever it might be. Would you pray that God would just put us out there? That God would thrust us out there? That we can speak as we ought to speak? This is where the Lord Jesus wanted us to place our prayers. This is where Paul, over and over and over again, pleaded for us to place our prayers. Pray. Enter into the labor. Pray for the sake of this ministry. Now, Paul doesn't just ask for that in a general way. He gets very specific. He he asks very specifically for three things in his ministry. First of all, that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. Treko is the word from which we obviously get trek. But it has the idea of a run, uh, of someone running. Paul probably picked it up from Psalm 147, verse 15, which talks about how God sends out His command to the earth and His Word runs swiftly, meaning that it has, the, it has the capacity to do its bidding. That's the image Paul picks up here. And what he's asking for is he's asking for them to pray for this. Pray that the Word of the Lord, the gospel as it is preached, would, when it is preached, would spread widely, would go forth rapidly, I mean, this is the natural desire of every minister. No one really wants to pour themselves into a ministry that's confined to a closet. I mean, we want the word of the Lord to spread over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's just natural. And Paul's asking because he understood that if this is going to happen, it'll only happen by the word, or excuse me, by the grace of God. Pray. Pray. Pray that the Word is unfettered to run freely, that is not constrained, that it will spread rapidly and more and more people will be impacted by it, in spite of whatever kind of hindrances might be there. I don't know if you spend time thinking about the preaching of the Word very much. I don't know if you spend time thinking about the kind of environment in which it is presented or the kinds of environments that we face as those who are to share the gospel today. I don't know if you spend time thinking about all of the hindrances that are placed on the gospel, thinking about all the ways that the enemy and the world try to constrain it, but you ought to think about that. You ought to ponder that. You ought to spend time praying that the word of the Lord would continue to spread in spite of that. You ought to be praying that, that you know, in a room like this, that there would be 500 voices... Who are proclaiming the word of God week in and week out. And that in every environment where they find themselves. That they are seeing the word of God run swiftly from their lips. That God uses them as ministers and evangelists. As his people to cause it to run and spread freely and widely. That was Paul's desire. It's every minister's desire. It's every pastor. It's the way that he would want you to pray for him. You would pray that the Word of God would be unhindered, that it would be proclaimed without impediment. And then it would have its work spread broadly. There's a second request. Paul says also that the Word would be honored as happened among you. This is, this is the way he described them back in First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. This is what Paul has in mind. He wants, when people hear the word of God proclaimed from us as ministers, he wants them to hear it, not as a word from us, but as a word from God. Everyone everyone wants to think about the ministry in such naturalistic terms. They want to reduce what takes place through the body of Christ, through His his teachers, or through whatever kind of gifts He gives to the church. They want to break it down into some sort of humanistic explanation. But they don't want to think about it for what it really is. It really is God ministering through His various Saints, in all the ways they ministers, and if, if they're teaching, if they're preaching, he is ministering his word through them. And this is what Paul's asking for, that when people hear the word of God, just like you, he says, just like it happened with you, I pray that they would honor it. Actually, the word is glorify it. Doxosadzo is the word. It's the word from which we get doxology, that they would glorify the word of God. That it wouldn't be just another lecture, another sort of TED talk that they hear on the circuit or something like that, but they would hear it and they would recognize this is different. This is different than anything else that I'm hearing in the world. This is not like what I see on the screen of my TV or what I hear imagined in the books that I read. This is different and it deserves a different kind of attention it deserves my whole heart, my whole being. I need to glorify this message because it's a message filled with the glory of God. That's what Paul's praying for. That's what he wants them to pray for. That they would hear it and they wouldn't walk away So say, well, yeah, that's nice. I like to I like hear that guy's thoughts on this or that. No, it's not this guy's thoughts. It's not... Shane Kohler's thoughts, it's not Paul's thoughts. You heard it, he says to the Thessalonians, and you didn't hear it like it was the word of men, you heard it like it was the word of God. People resist that today. They 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 build up in their hearts a resistance to the preaching of the word of God so that they don't want to hear it as the word of God. If they can just if they can just Label it as the word of a man, and they have the they have the right—at least they think in their heart—to just ignore it. Well, that may be their defense mechanism, but there's a judgment. There's a an accountability that comes when the word of God is preached. When you hear it, you are accountable to it, and so. Don't listen like a cynic or like a skeptic. When you hear the Word of God, ascribe glory to God. Ascribe glory to His Word. Honor it. Glorify it. That's what Paul wanted. That's what he asked them to pray for. And then finally, he asked that they would pray he would be delivered from wicked and evil men because not all have faith, which is obviously a massive understatement, right? Right? If you're into literary devices, this is what's technically called a litotes, an, a massive understatement for the sake of emphasis. Litotes. and Paul is asking for prayers so uh, because, I should say, he knew that he was preaching in a hostile environment. He understood the spiritual nature of, of the task at hand, the spiritual condition of those who would hear. He knew that they did not, the vast majority of them, did not have faith. They were not in a state of submission to God. They were not in a state of compliance to His Word. In fact, they are in a state of disobedience to the Word of God. They are in a state of rebellion to the Word of God and against His Word. He'd already experienced this firsthand. He'd frequently been opposed. He'd been harassed. He'd been slandered. He'd been falsely accused. He'd been persecuted and forcibly run out of towns. And yet none of it caused Paul to dial back his preaching or to question God's commandment to him to preach because he understood spiritually what was going on. He spiritually discerned why this resistance was there, where it was coming from. But he also knew that God was sovereign. He knew that he had nothing to fear, that the Lord could protect him and would protect him as he had done on many occasions. And yet, Paul never assumed. He never presumed, I should say, on the grace of God. He asked for the prayers of his people. He asked for the prayers of the saints just like He did in Colossians, just like He did in Ephesians, that, that, that a door would be opened for me, that the obstacles that are in my way would be removed, that, that somehow the people who are trying to shut, uh, shut the Word up or silence the minister or to shame them out of town or whatever it may be, that the Lord would deal with those people. So that the word of God would speed ahead and be unhindered and spread rapidly. And the people who hear it could hear it and glorify God for it. Tremendous, tremendous perspective on the ministry from a man who had learned the hard way. That if the ministry is going to succeed, this is the only way to succeed. He has seen the, the most obstinate kind of resistance at every turn. He had faced the total inability within himself to do anything about this kind of resistance. And he clearly understood that if the word was going to be successful, it would be successful only by the sovereign power of God. And so he leaned on prayer. Well, there's a second source of his confidence that he faced, uh, that he he had as he faced the challenges of ministry. And that's in verse 3. The source of his confidence for the security of their souls he says in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So here he switches. He's been talking about the dangers and the obstacles against himself and the potential danger that confronted him. And now he begins to talk about the potential danger that confronts them. Maybe the two things are really not that far apart in Paul's mind because these were the people to whom he ministered. They were his work. They were the ones to whom he preached, and they were the ones that that now, after he had labored among them, were facing potentially stumbling because of these workers who were sowing lies and falsehood among the congregation. The they are the field in which Paul worked, or the the building that he began to construct to use the, the metaphors out of Corinthians. So when he thought about the threat of wicked and evil men, he couldn't help but think about how these men were actually trying to undermine the Thessalonians themselves. And so, so he thinks, he makes a contrast. He, he's talked about how not all men have faith, but but the Lord is faithful. The contrast is intentional. The contrast is intentional. Their lack of faith is not the primary determining factor. Their lack of obedience, or lack of uh, submission, their lack of compliance, or lack of faith in the Lord is not the primary determining factor. And it's not the fact that so many people have no faith. It's the fact that the Lord is faithful. That He is committed to us. And this is far and away the, 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 the issue that supersedes any kind of animosity that might come against us from the world. In the words of Jesus Christ in John 16, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. That's what Paul's getting at here. Yeah, they don't all have faith, but thankfully, God is faithful. And so he understands that God would strengthen and establish them against the evil one. Not just the wicked men, not just wicked and evil men, as he says in verse 2, but the dark source that is behind them, the devil himself, the prince of the power of the air, who's at work among the sons of disobedience, who opposes Christ and opposes the preaching of his gospel and will do whatever he can to disrupt it. Again, Paul's discerning. He's discerning enough to know that behind all of the various attacks that come against the ministers of the gospel and the church and against the preaching of the gospel, he is discerning enough to know that behind even this false letter that had circulated within the Thessalonian church, behind so many of the things that upset their faith and upset the faith of so many people, behind all of that is the ultimate enemy, the evil one. And he wasn't naive. He wasn't naive about spiritual forces of wickedness, which are at work, as he says in the book of Ephesians. Again, so many people, they want to reduce all of these things down to naturalistic explanations. They want to bring all these things down to just some sort of humanistic element. They want to see the Apostle Paul, and here he is, run out of town after town after town, and they want to say, you know, that guy obviously has a problem. Paul wouldn't do that. He, he could see beyond that. He knew better. He knew who the enemy was. He knew who was working. But he also knew God's faithfulness. God is faithful against every formidable foe of The devil, Paul, had every confidence he would not despair because he knew his God. What a tremendous, tremendous example of confidence. When you're battling with the world, when you're doing battle with the world's influences over those whom you love, over those to whom you are ministering, and you can stand firm knowing That they ultimately are in the hands of the Lord. He will not forsake them. He will prove himself faithful. You don't have to go into sort of hysterical and and, uh, radical sort of steps. You can trust them to the Lord. You may remember even in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had the same expression of confidence at the end of the book. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful, he surely will do it. This was the, the confidence with which a minister of the Lord approached his work. Absolutely confident that, that these people would be kept and carried along by the Lord. He could trust them into the Lord's hands. He could rest secure. Not because of anything in his ministry. Not even because of anything in them and their character. But because of God's character. I mean, I can imagine myself, I mean, I would have been so tempted. I would have wanted to just, you know, march up there, 250 miles up to Thessalonica from down in Corinth. I would have wanted to sneak into the city at night and try to, you know, meet with everybody. I would have wanted to do all of those kinds of things. That would be in my natural fleshly response. But here's the minister of God who even when things are out of his hands, he could step back and he says, you know what? You're in God's hands. He is able He's able because He's faithful. He will establish you and He will guard you against the evil one. That's difficult. When you see beloved people going through trials, going through difficulties, when you see them even sometimes going down a pathway of false belief and false doctrine, and you certainly will make a case for the truth of God, you certainly will demonstrate your your understanding of the truth, but ultimately it is in the Lord's hands and you trust Him with that. And you can always be confident. You can always be trustful that the Lord's going to protect them. He's going to cause them to stand. This is really what prevents us from, from, if you will, falling down a path of manipulation. This is what prevents us from becoming these hyper-controlling kinds of people. It's what every sound elder board and every sound shepherd understands when it comes to the body of Christ. That's why, that's why when you see a domineering and, and controlling and manipulative spiritual leadership in a place, you have a group of people who, while on their lips may talk about the trust of the Lord, they have no trust. They have no trust. Just to preach the truth, to pray to the Lord, to believe as you accurately and faithfully proclaim the truth that ultimately God is the one who will cause His people to stand and to be established and to be guarded. Now there's a another source, a third source of Paul's confidence that he mentions here in verse 4. The source of his confidence for their sustained obedience. He adds to this here. He says, we have confidence also in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things which we commanded. Just note there, again, his confidence is clearly placed. We have confidence in the Lord. We believe certain things. We're convinced of certain things about you. But we're convinced of them because... Of your position in the Lord. We're convinced of them because because we understand God, we understand His gospel, we understand His work in believers, we understand all of those things. We understand the nature of God's work, the power of regeneration, the power of the Holy Spirit, the powerful working of the body of Christ, the church, to itself. We understand all of those things. So even though we can't be close to you, even though we can't be near to ensure that you're walking in obedience to all the things that we commanded, even though we can't sort of force you to do all these things, we can be confident that you will walk in obedience. This is a tremendously humble perspective. A tremendously humble perspective. This is a man who doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So many people get to the point where they begin to think that they are irreplaceable. That they think that their, whether it's their pulpit ministry, whether it's their Sunday school ministry, whether it's their ministry over the children, whatever it is, they begin to think, well, if I don't do it, If it isn't me, then then things are just going to go off the rails. Paul says, look, I'm confident in the Lord. That you're going to do what we have commanded and you'll continue to do it. And it's going to really do it. It's going to really happen, even though I'm not there, even though I'm not constantly reminding you, even though I'm not holding your hand and guiding and leading you. I am confident in the Lord. This is spiritual leadership. This is spiritual leadership. This is a godly man who understands exactly who he is, who the Lord is, how he works, and he can trust all of these things into the Lord's hands. Sometimes you see that in spiritual leaders. They they might come across as perhaps even a little bit lax, at least not anxious, not as anxious as you might want them to be, not all stirred up. People call me, they call our elders sometimes, and in an absolute frenzy Oh, pastor, you, did you hear about this? You've got to do something about this. You've got to deal with this. And, and while I may not say it, I'm thinking, in the Lord. Okay, I, I, I'll talk to this person. I might say something. But in the Lord, I have to be confident that he is going to protect them, guide them, bring them to obedience, and cause them to stand. Tremendous perspective. Paul understood that this is the nature of a Christian. A genuine Christian will eventually walk in obedience. God will ensure it. He will ensure it. We have the opportunity to be involved with the process. We have the opportunity to encourage people, to hold them accountable, to pray for them. But ultimately, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on anything. It depends on the Lord. Because He has given them a new nature. As Peter says, they're sons of obedience. That's the word he uses to describe Christians. Sons of obedience. Meaning that it is their very nature to obey God. To obey His commandments. Even when you're facing weakness in your flesh and struggling with a particular area of obedience, the Lord will not allow his children to slip into a state of ongoing disobedience he will discipline them the book of hebrews says if you are without discipline he says you're not a child of god because god disciplines those that he loves so even if christians begin to stray and and begin to walk down a pathway of danger or destruction we warn them but we don't get hysterical Because we understand and we trust that if they are a genuine believer, the Lord will bring them back. They will walk in obedience. Paul was confident in them. He was confident enough, he had seen enough in their life to convince him that they were genuine converts, and so he was confident that even if he couldn't be there, present with them at that moment, by the power of prayer and the working of the Lord, God would be at work in them. We can add a fourth source of Paul's confidence in the face of these challenges in ministry. In verse 5, the source of his confidence for their sanctification through love. He's come full circle now from asking them to pray for him to now offering a prayer for them in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer. You can kind of see the tension here already. Yeah, I'm confident you're going to obey, but I'm still going to pray. I'm going to pray that the Lord would direct your heart in the right direction, which, which he says is the love of God, that he would direct, that he would guide you through all the potential obstacles and hindrances, that he would direct your pathway clearly into his love. Not that they had never experienced it. He's not suggesting that they had never been introduced to the love of God. What he's really talking about is a full understanding of the love of God. That God's love would reach the place in their hearts and minds where it so dominated them. And so overwhelmed them. That it secured them for uh, against whatever kind of trial would come their way. So, so full in their hearts. So exceeding. So abundant. Like Romans 5 says, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. But he explains That because of that, we have hope. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So whenever we're going through these difficult circumstances, whenever we are... Having to build endurance and having to build character and having to build hope, the hope never lets us down because God's love that drives us, the the trials drive us deeper and deeper, that love, the deeper and deeper we go into the trial, the more and more we cling to the love of God and that doesn't disappoint us. Well, this is what Paul wanted for the Thessalonians. He wanted them to be solidly, firmly, unshakably founded on the love of God. Like he prays for the Ephesian believers. Praying, he says, that you would be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. I love that imagery. Rooted uh, like, a, like a tree, right? Or grounded or, or founded is the word, like a building. I pray that you would have this roots and this foundation in the love of God, but not only that, but even what is above that foundation, that you would know what is the height and the breadth and the depth to know all the riches, he says, of the love of Christ, listen to this, which surpasses knowledge. Now, what would you think of me if I approached you in the hall and say, listen, I want you to know something, but it actually surpasses knowledge. You would think I'm crazy. But this is the limitations of the human language. Paul says, look, I want you to know this, but I can't even really fully explain it to you. But the love of God, it surpasses knowledge. You know, I remember going in 1992 to Romania shortly after the fall of communism there and we did our our ministry and then and one uh, free afternoon that we had we went to the palace of Nicolae Ceausescu. Some of you may have been there. It had been taken over by the government now and so they had tours and I remember going and uh, walking through and we went into, I think we went in there and turned left and we went down one quarter of one wing on one floor. And we were there all afternoon, just walking around, there's gold on the ceilings and all these expensive draperies and just uh, gaudy, outrageous stuff. And we spent three or four hours just looking at one floor of one quarter of one wing. And then we, I remember we walking out and I looked back and I looked at this massive, massive building. I think it, I believe at that point, the second largest building next to the Pentagon on the face of the earth. And just kind of contemplating, you know, I just saw one quarter of one wing on one floor. I mean, I just couldn't even wrap my head around that, the massiveness of that house and everything that was on the inside. Well, Paul's saying, look, I don't want you to know just one quarter of one wing of one floor of God's love. I want you to know the whole thing. I want you to know the the height and the breadth and the depth and everything about the love of God. That's my prayer for you. Well, this is what he's praying for the Thessalonians. May God direct your hearts into this. May he sanctify you. May he may He mature you by directing your hearts through all these trials and all these difficulties into the love of God. You know, we face this all the time. I face this. When you're ministering to somebody and they're going through trials and difficulties and you want to just grab them and you want to shake them, you say, God loves you. I know you feel like you have completely failed. I know you feel... That you have gone so far and God cannot take you back. I know, I know the feeling, but you have got to understand something you cannot understand. You've got to know something that is unknowable. The love of God, which surpasses all knowledge. And so I'm just going to pray that God would direct your hearts into that. And consequently, as Paul says, into the steadfastness of Christ, into His Undying faithfulness to us. I'm going to pray. Because sometimes that's all I can do. Sometimes that's all you can do. Right? You minister the word of God and then you pray. Some of you are here today and you've only heard faintly about some of these things. Love of God. No one's ever talked to me about the love of God that way. You would would be one of those people. Who, obedience doesn't come easily to you. Compliance to the Word of God, submission to His, doesn't define your life. And the love of God is not something that you know much about. Well, our challenge to you today is that you would be introduced to that. That you wouldn't leave here today not understanding the love of God, not understanding the grace of Christ. Especially if you're in the midst of a trial. Especially if you're in the midst of a, a, some sort of unraveling in your life. God has brought you here today so that you can hear this message. So that you can understand that when things all begin to fall apart, when the rubble is crumbling all around you, that there's a power through the gospel that can cause you to stand. God certainly doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin. He knows what you have done, but He is eager to forgive it. And if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, He gladly receives all those who call on His name. If you're interested to do that, when we're done here with a prayer, we're going to have a visitor reception back there. I encourage you to come see me. Find any of our Sunday school teachers, any of our elders. Give us an opportunity to be able to share this great message with you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this word, thankful for the gospel. We do pray, we do ask that you would let it have its work, that it would run swiftly, that it would penetrate into the hearts, that it would be honored and glorified when people hear it. And we pray for those today. Who have heard your word but have never honored it in that way. They have heard it only as the word of men. But not as the word of God. May you change their ears. Their eyes and their heart. And give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And hearts to believe. And make them your own. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.